Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. Well, those of you who have been long-term listeners of the podcast will know John Hempton very well. John's been on the podcast a number of times and has a large global following, so I'm sure you'll all enjoy this at times long-ranging conversation where we really dig into some things. So sit back, enjoy, get yourself a cup of tea, or maybe even come back to the pod a couple of times if you're doing it in transport. We cover a number of items, including how the Ukraine situation has led to a spike in oil and gold companies, both the great quality companies and also the frauds. We talk about left field investment ideas, including John's thinking around European banks, and talk about his upcoming trip to Poland to investigate that. We talk about how the US intelligence system got the invasion into the Ukraine correct on this occasion. We also talk about how China's zero COVID policy may have negative consequences on the Australian dollar. John talks about clean tech and biotech and how they're wonderful areas that will be very meaningful society going forward, but full of frauds and opportunities for their short book. John talks about the economics of batteries and green steel. And to round it all out, he talks about his economic outlook. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. You're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and make your own inquiries before people invest in any markets or specific investments. Please keep your emails coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. John Hempton, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Glad to be here. It's fantastic to have you on again. I think it might be the third time, so it's terrific. Maybe we could kick off uh, with, you, with you giving us a bit of a summary as to recent sort of performance and why it has been that way. Ah, okay. We're a long short fund and we kicked off the first half of the quarter looking ridiculously well. Um, our long book was behaving poorly, but everybody's long book was behaving poorly. The markets were going down and we would expect that. And our short book was absolutely kicking the lights out. And so even though we're sort of 130 long and 60 short, we were up above 5%, well above 5% at the middle of um, the quarter. And then things went to crap. And uh, um, they went to crap in a very specific way, which was it was all triggered by Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. And the logic is this. We short all sorts of things that are not normally correlated. So it turns out that oil stocks usually do great when the economy does good, good. And fraudulent oil stocks always outperform good oil stocks when the market goes up. It's really funny. When the market is going crazy, the frauds go up faster. When the market's going down, the frauds go down faster. It's just the way it is. And we're also short, and we're always going to be short, fraudulent gold stocks. You know, the Mark Twain comment, a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar on top. And gold stocks, norm gold price normally does good when the economy does poorly. And so it turns out that on a day-to-day -day basis, um, fraudulent gold stocks, oil stocks and gold stocks move in opposite directions, a lot of the time. And the fraudulent ones really move in opposite directions. And that actually seems to be statistically robust up until 
this Putin invasion. And then Putin invades and lo and behold, all the oil frauds start going up. And then all, all the gold frauds start going up. Oh, and dare I say it, the uranium frauds start going up. And then the alternative energy frauds start going up. And, you know, th this, this really affects us quite badly. So, you know, one of the ways I describe it is we short what I call left-wing frauds and right-wing frauds. The right-wing fraud du jour, this was actually done by a friend of the former president of the United States. You advertise on Facebook for people who are just about to retire or just retired, who express strongly conservative views or pro-Trump views. And then once you get them, you start feeding them conspiracy theories about how unions are ganging up to bankrupt various states, how the Fed is going to take the dollar and make it worthless, how, right? And basically, every version of the extreme right theory that you can. And then you lead them to websites that tell them that they've got to invest their money in gold or precious metals or some offshore trust in order to protect it. And you play their political merit, political viewpoint. And when they make decisions based on their politics rather than any analysis of the business, they, the money all gets stolen. Right? And what you've done is you've supplemented their judgment with, you know, their financial judgment with their politi political judgment and just stolen their money. And there's the, there's the left-wing fraud as well. And the left-wing fraud does exactly the same thing, except that instead of um, sending you to some form of gold buggery, it's going to lead you with greenhouse gases are going to destroy the world, that you have to invest in alternative energy, that if you do this, you'll be rich and you'll save the planet, right? And then they steal your money. Right? And if there's any difference between those two frauds, it says more about you than it does about them because they're exactly the same fraud. They're just done by different people. Or sometimes, dare I say it cynically, they might even be done by the same person. <laughs> anyway, that said, we short both left-wing frauds and right-wing frauds. And normally, because the way the world is, they go in opposite directions. And when Putin came, well, guess what? The gold price went up and all of those frauds went up. And dare I say it, Europe decided it needed to be on alternative energy. So all the green frauds went up as well. And so a whole lot of correlations we had in our short book broke down. And so we went from being up about 6% for the month, and I'm talking in US dollars, mm -hmm. right? Um, to down about 2% for the quarter. It was just straight up and straight down. And we didn't quite get it right. I mean, we should have realized faster just how bad our Ukraine basket, which was our basket of things that were driven by the Ukraine, by the Ukraine situation, was. But Celave, we got that. And then on the short, on the long side, we have a few stocks that were also hurt. So we own shares in a company called KWS, which is the world leader in sugar beet seeds. It's actually a really good business. It's largely family owned in Germany. But it turns out that something like six to eight percent of their revenue is either Ukraine or Russia. And whilst food sanctions, right, while food sanctions aren't biting, it's pretty hard to plant in Ukraine at the moment. You know, do you really want to plant when there are tanks running down the road next to your field? Um, so that so we got hit on both ends. Now, as it turns out, you know, over the quarter we actually outperformed the market by a little bit. And we're really disappointed with the result. And the reason we're really disappointed was that we, we got a bunch of things wrong at the end. Now, there is some interesting things, though. Um, 
For the last sort of decade, America has outperformed Europe by a lot. And partly that is that Europe started expensive. If you go back the decade before that, Europe outperformed America by a lot, right? But this decade was extreme. And if you had to look at it, Europe is pretty reasonably priced by historic standards and um, America is priced off the scale. And then along comes Ukraine crisis and the European stocks take it even worse than the American stocks. So we actually think there might be some value there. Now, for the purposes of trying to find it, I'm actually getting on the road. So I'm going, going to Europe and in particular, I'm going to Eastern Europe and I'm digging around. Now, there are some really left field ideas. The most left field idea, and we have no position, and you might come back in a year's time and we still have no position, is European banks. If you look at banks around the world, let's divide the world into countries that have oligopolistic banks like Australia or Scandinavia or Canada. Mm -hmm. And those banks are mostly okay. And countries with highly competitive banking systems like Germany or Japan. And the last thing you want to be is a bank in one of those countries. And I think that's generally true. I'm not interested in owning banks in a country with 25 banks, but I'm actually quite interested in owning banks in a country with four banks or three banks or two banks like Ireland. But then I want to divide the world another way, which is those that have excess loan demand and those that have excess deposit supply. Right? And you know, obviously for every lender, there's a borrower somewhere in the system. Mm -hmm. Borrow this. So, you know, Australia, there's excess loan demand. You see it everywhere in our mortgage market. Right? Um, but if you look at Germany or Japan, there's excess deposit supply. Now, the, wor the worst of the worst of the worst are banks that are not oligopolistic in a country that has excess deposit supply. Right? And the reason for that is, well, you know, if you're a wash in deposits and interest rates are zero or negative, you ain't going to make any money, mm -hmm. right? And there's no loan demand. So if you have a look at a lot of European banks, they are literally trading at the same price as they were in 1970, right? It's utterly extraordinary. Now, they were expensive institutions in 1970, and during the 10 years or 15 years before that, everything went right for them. Right? And in the 50 years since, more or less everything has gone wrong for them. Right? Well, actually, for the last 20 years. But go have a look at the charts. It's kind of amazing. Um, the Swiss banks are even worse. But, you know, they go back 50 years, you haven't made a penny other than dividends. Right? People tell you stocks always go up. They haven't looked at European banks. But here we are. And European interest rates aren't going to be zero anymore. It doesn't look like that way. We're finally coming off that zero bound. You know, took us 10 years, but German Bund rates are now positive. And the second thing is, there may well be an enormous investment demand in Europe. I mean, it's totally possible to wean yourself off greenhouse gases. It's totally possible to wean yourself off Russian oil and gas. But if anyone tells you that it doesn't involve a lot of capital, they're lying. It's going to cost you a lot of investment. And this is actually going to happen in Europe. Right? Um, it's now become quite clear that you know, taking Russian gas 
as your core energy source or your core swing energy source is a strategic risk for Germany. And so you can have this situation where you get a massive investment boom, interest rates come off zero, and the banks that are in the way of that investment boom go from being fairly marginally profitable or unprofitable institutions to highly profitable institutions. Now, as I said, I haven't bought any of them, right? And it's a very big call because what you're looking at is saying, hey, the, the sector that has been most thumped in the world over the, you know, the most hated sector in the world over 20 years or 30 years is going to swing, right? Calls like that, you know, I'm not used to wanting to make big calls like that. I'm used to trying to find a sector that has swung, right? And, you know, seeing 20 years of runway and trying to ride it. Um, but it doesn't stop me wanting to learn about it. So I'm off to Poland. Now, Poland's a particularly good place in this case. And the reason Poland's a good place is that Poland has its own currency, the Zloty. It's really cheap because, let's face it, it's got unpleasant neighbours. And all of those pressures that I applied happen without having, whilst having oligopolistic banks. We have some small positions in European banks and they're, they're in oligopolies. We're in very small French regional banks and we own some Irish banks. And none of those have worked. But if interest rates go off zero and there's a sort of Europe-wide investment boom, they can be just fabulous, right? So again, just things we're thinking about rather than doing yet. And John, did you have any positions in any Russian or Ukraine equities or derivatives of no, them? No, we, we have almost no emerging market positions at all. And the reason is that generally we buy extremely good businesses. And if you look at emerging markets, they're normally full of the crappiest businesses. So I mean, nobody lists a Coca-Cola in an emerging market. What they list is businesses that need capital. So if you go have a look at the Thai stock exchange, it's a bank, it's a bank, it's an insurance company, it's a telecom, it's, it's a chemicals company, it's a cement company. In other words, things that have big machines or a petrochemical refinery or something. And all of those go to the stock market because they need your money, right? And in America, there are lots of stocks like Google that don't need your money, right? And I'd rather generally invest in things that don't need your money than things that do need your money, mm -hmm. right? I'd rather invest in things that are going to be giving back money to shareholders for a very long time. So the total amount of emerging market stocks that we own is under 5% of the portfolio. And mostly those are the very rare things in emerging markets that don't need your money. So we own some tobacco stocks in emerging markets and that's about it, right? And so no, we have no, nothing in Russia, nothing in Ukraine, but we have businesses that sell to Russia and sell to the Ukraine. Ukraine. So the, the most controversial long we own is Herbalife and about 5% of its business is in Russia and Ukraine. And we should have known because I actually signed up as a Herbalife distributor as a research person. And I found myself one of the biggest distributors in the world. Your territory was in Russia. No, it turns Ukraine, out that his it? territory is Russia and, the Ukra and Ukraine, <laughs> right? He speaks Russian. He also speaks half a dozen other languages, but he was a Russian Jew and he built a Herbalife business in 
Russia. Um, so he's not very happy at the moment, as you might imagine, because the company, you know, all of that stuff is falling apart. Um, and John, did the, did the invasion by Putin into the Ukraine surprise you? Because it seems there was a lot of what I felt were well-educated, well-informed people that were saying that Putin was gaming the situation to keep the Ukraine out of NATO. Uh, were you surprised to see them go in? Um, in all honesty, I have absolutely no expertise in geopolitics, mm -hmm. none at all. We run what are normally fairly balanced books. So, you know, as I said, we have the right-wing frauds and the left-wing frauds, and they move in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. And the beauty of having balanced books is that you can have large areas of lack of expertise, like, dare I say it, foreign policy, and survive. Um, most people who talk about foreign policy, in my experience, are wankers. I spent 10 years of my career in Canberra. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that about yep. most of the people that talked foreign policy issues in Canberra, and they know more than I do. Okay. Right? So d to say I was surprised, genuinely I had no opinion. What I am impressed by, though, is that the American intelligence services were absolutely right the whole time. They were saying it was going to happen as the troops moved away. The Americans were saying, no, they're just regrouping. Right? Um, in other words, American intelligence is full of people that can watch Russia better than I can. So next time they say something like that, I'm going to take them seriously. Yeah. Okay. Right? And think through the consequences. But I had no right to be surprised because I have no right to an opinion. Right? I just don't know enough. Sure. And John, you mentioned then that you have, and I think we've spoken in the past, uh, the position in the tobacco industry. Has that given you much grief or created much chatter, particularly given the strength of ESG, ESG investing and all the noise that seems to have only grown in the last 18 months in markets? Uh, yeah, the tobacco stocks are cheap and they're still cheap, but they've actually gone up, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a market where the world has mostly gone down in the last six months, right? You know, markets look like they peaked out a bit everywhere. And most of the tobacco stocks are quite a lot more expensive than six months ago. So the answer to that is no, it's caused us no grief at all, right? Um, that doesn't mean that there haven't been bad days, right? Mm -hmm. um, most of the bad days have revolved around our biggest nicotine stock, which is not even a cigarette company, it's Swedish Match. and questions about whether um, oral tobacco products in the US are going to get taxed differently or whether there'll be rules about flavor bans. Mm -hmm. right. But their cheap stocks, the news flow hasn't been very good. But there's an old saying in stock markets that good things happen to cheap stocks. And we're fairly happy with the position they're actually a little less cheap than they were, right? So, you know, I, 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 I'd love to say I made lots of money, but we didn't. Yeah. They've certainly been on the better side of the book. And John, we've talked about the war in the Ukraine a little bit, but there's still a global pandemic going on. And there's also a, a shift in monetary policy and aiming that the Fed's indicating, or markets are priced for interest rate increases of something in the order of six to seven times. Each of these things on its own could you know, lead to a global market 
pull back of circa 10 to 20 percent and, uh, and none of them have but we've got three of them at one time how, how are we viewing that look the world's always uncertain right um and if you list that sort of group of things i'm thinking about it from the perspective i mean the vast bulk of our clients are not australian we are a fund manager that manages money for foreign clients with a few australian clients at coda on the side and i'm really it is just that right um you're, you're, you are our important Australian client, <laughs> but in the scheme of things, you're not our important clients. Um, but we do have to think about it because the Australian dollar is driven by this. So let's take a look at what's happening to the Australian dollar at the moment. Well, there is a commodity price zoom up, and that's led by oil and gas, which are Ukraine-Russia commodities, Nickel, where the biggest nickel mines in the world are Norlisk in northern, northern Siberia. To some extent, copper. And probably by timber, although I don't have a fairly good grasp on the timber prices. Australia is an exporter of gas and an importer of oil. We're an exporter of nickel and an exporter of copper. Right? Um, oh, we're also an exporter of gold in a very big way. But gold has also been driven. So that, all of that looks good for Australia. Well, almost all of it, right? But, you know, rising commodity prices drive up the Australian dollar. As we're talking, Shanghai is in hard lockdown. It's fairly likely that China is going to go through a fairly cathartic period with COVID. They have stupidly or not tried to use their own vaccine, which doesn't work very well. And the lesson of COVID is that you know, if you let it run wild before everyone's vaccinated, you're going to get a very large number of deaths, maybe 0.3% of the population, maybe a bit higher. In America, about a million people have died, which is, you know, 0.3% of the population. Um, if you let it run after everybody's vaccinated, or up, then you'll get some deaths amongst the unvaccinated. There's always a few. And you'll get deaths amongst people who are 80 and above. Right. And if you look at the deaths in New South Wales, they're largely people who are above 80 and above, 80 and above, and most of them are vaccinated. I mean, what the vaccine appears to do is turn what is a really, really nasty disease into something between a bad cold and a bad flu. Now, a bad flu is not going to kill you when you're 50, but it might kill you when you're 97. If you do it unvaccinated, it's horrible. China's vaccine on the stats looks like it's about half half as effective as the ones that we've been taking. And that means that if China lets it run, they're gonna get mass death. And it will reflect badly on the administration. There's a simple solution, it's dial 1800 Pfizer, but they haven't been prepared to take that solution. I don't, I don't particularly understand enough of Chinese politics, but it's fairly clear that um, in the absence of them dialing 1800 Pfizer, China is going to go through a pretty sharp withdrawal of demand this year. And that's pretty negative, the Australian dollar. And if we go through the Russian commodities, it's not obvious either. I mean, Australia exports gas, but most of the gas we export is on fixed price contracts. Some of them are contracts that are fixed to the oil price, so they're wonderful at the moment. So oil searches contracts, for instance, which are Papua New Guinea, but I know them. Uh, fixed the oil price and that looks great for Santos or because Santos and oil search have now merged. Um, 
but some of them are just fixed price contracts. So there's no real driver, of, there's no real commodity effect there. Mm -hmm. If you haven't noticed, Australia is a pretty big importer of oil. So that's a very, that's just, a, the oil price is just a straight offset there. The gold price has moved up, but not a massive amount. It's gone from 1800 to 1950. And I think in Australian dollar terms, it's probably gone down. Right? It's pretty close, you know, line ball. The other commodities that matter are nickel and copper. Now, I don't believe for a second that, that Russia's nickel supply is going to stop. Right? You can fit all of their nickel output on two trains or a couple of thousand trucks. Right? If you've put it on a couple of thousand trucks, you can drive it to China. Right? The total global nickel supply doesn't look like it changes much at all. The total global nickel supply doesn't change much. The price spike that we've seen in nickel should be temporary. Now, there is, of course, a very big demand effect in nickel because nickel's kind of useful for making batteries for electric cars. Um, we've spent a bit of time thinking about battery technology as well. And the main reason we try to think about battery technology is that the battery industry is full of frauds. Mm -hmm. And so understanding the technology is useful for being able to work out which ones are frauds. But the sort of very big picture is that there is a technology which batteries have, you can make them have nice properties, meaning faster charge, faster discharge. You can make them last long, you can make them light, but you can't make them all those things, right? You can make them cheap, but you can't make them all those things. Now, um, Lithium-ion phosphates have no expensive elements in them, so they're fairly cheap. They have fairly nice number of cycles that you can do. You can recharge them and discharge them a lot of times. That's great for a car. They have an advantage, disadvantage though, and the disadvantage is that they're heavy. So if you want your, your um, electric car to behave like a Porsche, it doesn't have lithium-ion phosphate batteries in it. Mm -hmm. and because electric cars can have real acceleration. I mean, the Tesla just outruns anything, right? You know, part of the fun of an electric car is that they behave like a Porsche, right? But they don't have lithium ion phosphates in them. But if you don't mind your car behaving like a tank, right, being heavy, you can make, you can make cars for the world which don't contain any nickel, right? They don't have, you know, the batteries are cheap. Now, there's a whole debate, which I haven't followed, between Tesla's made in China and Tesla's made in Germany. And the answer is the battery chemistry changes. So one of those, the cars behave, is a bit heavier and has nicer recharge cycles, but doesn't go as fast. And, you know, because it's heavier, it's not so much fun around a corner, right? But I'm not even sure how much nickel's gonna go into the battery supply in the world. And it depends, you know, whether you're wanting rich man's cars or every man's cars, yeah. right? I, I suspect I want a rich man's car, but my wife wants an every man's car. <laughs> John, I heard you talk about clean tech a while ago, and I think we've maybe spoken a couple of times um, about this. And I, I almost hear this in your voice in the same tone that you talk about biotech in some ways. And, and this sort of takes me Maybe you could just remind the, the listeners how you construct a short book. And I think you can also reference 
there's a, there's a podcast that you found very helpful that talks oh, about yeah. gaming and math. Uh, um, yeah, I should talk, talk about that. If I actually want to talk about constructing a short book, that's a long discussion. It takes a, an hour. And there's a podcast called The Risk of Ruin podcast, which is a podcast that discusses professional gambling. The Risk of Ruin? Yes. Plugging um, other podcasts on mine, I'll yeah, allow no, it. No, but, it's a first. But it's also not a podcast that covers any of the areas that you That's cover. Fine. It covers issues like how much is the optimal bet if you're counting cards at a casino, right? How do you behave at a casino so they won't kick you out when you're counting cards, right? These are yes. not issues of the investment world, but in fact, there's a lot of maths involved. And I became obsessive about listening to the Risk of Ruin podcast because I was interested in working out what of the maths that I could bring into managing my own portfolio. And I wrote a rather nice letter to the podcaster, whose name's John also, and he invited me on the podcast. And so we wound up with an hour discussion, which is absolutely meticulous about, the about how you manage a short book. And it's full of all my horror stories. Um, but I was really hoping that people would listen to that and I would get some gambling mathematician who came out of the woodwork and wanted to work for us or something. And have they turned up yet? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. And how many short positions do you have at the moment, roughly? About 600. And that's so, the problem, which is that once you get to 600 positions, you need to manage them with mathematics. And so... We're at the sort of functional limit where we can manage them with people overlooking everyone. And we've set simple things like alerts that say when they go up this much, we have to have another look at them. So most of the shorts we don't look at because they don't trigger an alert. Yes. Right. But that portfolio management discussion is getting more sophisticated every two months at Bronte. And where our computer system for finding shorts is humming along quite nicely and it may actually lead us to the situation where we have 12 or 1400 yes. in the world and if we can have 12 or 1400 then the, the the computer system for managing the positions has to keep up with the computer system for finding the position has to be much more robust so we that's our robust discussion there but if you talk about clean tech and biotech yeah they're both places we have lots of shorts. The biotech industry will probably be the most important industry in the world in the next 20 years. It's going to be an enormously important thing. And the idea that you should be short every biotech stock is just crazy. Mm -hmm. right? One of our biggest longs is Regeneron, which is a biotech stock. We're long a couple of minor ones as well. But also biotech is one of those opaque places with lots of growth that people pin lots of hope on. And it's full of frauds. It's absolutely full of frauds, and they're never prosecuted. I mean, Joe Sixpack invests $100,000 in a biotech that's going to cure some rare children's disease, and he's told all these wonderful stories by the manager. And it turns out all those stories are false, and the $100,000 disappears. He goes to ASIC and says, you've defrauded me. And ASIC says, you invested 100000 in a biotech. What did you expect? Even if ASIC decides he's a fraudster and takes him to court, they've got a real big problem, which is that you look like a dirty capitalist that wanted to make money, and he looks like somebody that wanted to cure a rare children's disease. You just lose in front of a jury. Mm -hmm. 
And so it turns out that biotech is both a really important high growth industry, but full of large amounts of fraud. And dare I say it, clean tech is too, right? Um, I'm fully on board with the idea that either we do something ex exceedingly large about greenhouse gases over the next 20 years and over, about pollution and about getting rid of the bad sides of capitalism, mm -hmm. or we wreck the planet. I think that's actually a given. I'd prefer to do that with markets and market incentives, and I think that probably is where we will go. But if you believe that, clean tech is going to be, in all its forms, one of the biggest industries in the world in the next 20 years. It's going to be incredibly important, and it's full of people that look just as benevolent as the guy who is um, curing children's diseases. And just as fraudulent as the guy who's curing children's diseases. So you could simultaneously have clean tech being an area that's really important, really going to grow, and full of frauds. Right? And this is, I mean, in that sense, you know, it doesn't look very different from gold mines, right? Yeah. And how do you identify, John, the difference between the ones that you want to own long and the ones you want to short? Well, the first, the first answer is always we do it on the people, right? That is, if somebody was once a biotech fraudster and they're now running a clean tech, guess what? I'm short them. Um, somebody who did gold mines and now is running a clean tech, they're pretty obvious a lot of the time, especially if the goal. And to a large degree, we're librarians. For instance, I have a database of a million penny stock emails. Mm -hmm. These are emails sent to people to invest in dodgy stocks. You know, the sort of crap that you get that usually winds up in your junk folder. Sure. We have a million of them. In fact, we probably have three million, but I, I only have a particular junk pile of a million of them. And if a company, if a, direct, a guy is a director of four companies that are in my penny stock database that have all gone to zero, and he's now the director of a clean tech, I probably want to short it, right? The second, the second thing we do is we do try to understand the science. So for instance, one of the things that we've done is we've created a spreadsheet which is simple. All it does is it talks about the energy conversion all the way up the hydrogen chain. So suppose you wanted to make, and I think this will happen one day, Twiggy Forest most certainly thinks it'll happen, mm -hmm. but suppose you want to make green steel. Mm -hmm. In order to make green steel, you've got to take the carbon out of it. And the carbon comes, has a particular use, which is that iron ore is iron oxide, and you've got to drive the oxygen off to make pure iron. And the way you drive the oxygen off is you bind it to something, a reducing agent. And the thing that we traditionally bind it to is coal, right? particularly mm -hmm. carbon, particularly very, very high grades of coal. But you could just as easily grind, bind it to hydrogen. And green steel, you, the way you would do it is you would make electricity with solar panels. The solar panel, that electricity is used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen probably has very little use, but you'll use some of it for the steel making. Most of it will wind up being just vented to the atmosphere because you don't have a use for it. But the hydrogen can be used to, make, to drive the oxygen off the iron ore and remake water. Mm -hmm. right? Now, if you believe, you know, roughly speaking, 
something like 9% of global greenhouse gases are metals processing. And if you think that we're going to run a modern society with zero carbon, we've got to, we've got to do this hydrogen to metals thing on a grand scale. And the absolutely logical place to do it is Northern Australia. We've got plenty of land, plenty of sunshine, plenty of metals to process. In a post greenhouse gas world, right, you know, post 2050 zero world, Northern Australia is the absolute epicenter of metals production in the world. Right? Um, Australia could be an unbelievable winner out of a zero carbon world, like an off the scale winner. But all of that, I believe, I'm not sure whether we'll politically get there, but I cannot tell you how many frauds there are in the space. And so one of the things we did was we just created a physics spreadsheet. How, mu how much energy do you need to make a kilogram of carbon? The answer is about 36 kilowatt hours and I'm doing it from memory, mm -hmm. right? How much at a, reason a reasonable conversion, because that's 36 kilowatt hours assuming 100% efficiency, and the answer is about 50 kilowatt hours. How many solar panels do you need to lay out to get 50 kilowatt hours of, right? How many solar panels do I need in order to process, you know, 100,000 tons of, or 100 million tons of iron ore a year, right? Or to make the steel use of, say, the United States. Mm -hmm. We have all of that in spreadsheets. And then a lot of the frauds are really sloppy, right? The science doesn't work, right? You know, right? we just compare it to our spreadsheet and, ah, so we go from being, well, he's, he looks a little suspect as a person or it's a suspect broke. It's probably 70% likely to be a fraud to 97% likely to be a fraud. Mm -hmm. And we do, the, I mean, that clean tech is very amenable to science because a lot of it is very basic chemistry. Well you know, a standard university chemistry, right? And that's well within our skill set. The biotech is a bit harder because to tell you the truth, we know most of the stuff that is to be known about macrochemistry. And we don't know very much about biochemistry and how people work and how organisms work. And, you know, every year, the amount, every year, the amount of knowledge just goes up mm -hmm. at a massive rate. And so it's harder on the science to pick the frauds. Although we can do that too. And I'm not going to give the tricks away in this game, but um, we have certain scientific shorthands that are absolute guarantees for fraud. We also have, um, I mean, one I do talk about, gold mining. If there's gold in that hill up there, there's gold in the creek below the hill. That's been, right? The way you found gold in Southern Europe in Roman Empire, 100 BC, Roman Empire times, was you panned in the creek, and if you panned in the creek, you'd find some gold, and then you'd go uphill, and you'd upstream, and if you'd pan in the left fork and the right fork, and if there was gold in the left fork, you'd keep going upstream, and you'd go left, right, right, left, left, yeah. and eventually you'd find a hill that was eroding. And the hill that was eroding was the mother of the gold in the creek, hence it was called the mother load. Mm -hmm. And um, by contrast, and the way you found gold in 1860 in New South Wales was the same, right? You, the old timers panned in the creek and they went upstream till they found the mother load. And when they found the mother load, the Romans would put 
um, if there was two grams per tonne in the rock, the Romans would put slaves on it and they would grind the whole mountain to dust and they would take the gold out. And if there was two grams a tonne in Australia, the Chinese would come and grind the whole mountain to dust. And it turns out that the cutoff grade for the Romans is very similar to the cutoff grade to the Chinese miners. And the reason is that um, the price of gold hasn't changed very much in 2000 years in any real terms. And the technology didn't change very much. And Chinese gold, gold miners on the gold fields in 1865 worked about as hard as Roman slaves in 100 BC. Wow. Right, so that, it turns out that's really useful. So if somebody's got a gold in that hill and it's two and a half grams per tonne, I know they're lying. Yeah. They're just lying. And the reason is that the Chinese or the Romans would have found it first. But there are some exceptions. What if it's under a glacier? Mm -hmm. Well, then my old trick doesn't work. We have one in Canada at the moment, which looks like a fraud to us, but the problem is that the gold field is under 15 metres of glacial moraine. Mm -hmm. And because it's under 15 metres of glacial moraine, our test doesn't work, right? And it's really annoying because I'd, I'd, I'd love to be 100% sure, but I'm not, right? And so we've got that one in gold. We've got 50 others, I'm not going to tell you. No, we fine. have a whole lot in biotech that are simple tests like that. But you also need to understand when they don't work. That one doesn't work if the gold is below a creek line. It mm -hmm. doesn't believe, work if the gold is below a, below a glacier. Gotcha. And we discovered, much to our chagrin, that it doesn't work if the gold is below 15 metres of glacial moraine. Yeah, yeah. So, John, we've covered a, a huge array of topics there, and thank you for that. In, in summing up, I think it'd be helpful for our visitors, and then we can call it quits on this episode, and thanks for the time, is given all of the things that are going on, it's always interesting times in markets, and there's always risks, how are you feeling about the next 12 months, and how would you encourage investors to think about the next 12 months? Oh, that's ugly. First, let me tell you that inflation-adjusted bonds trade with fairly sharply negative real yields. Mm -hmm. So if you want to put your money in a government-guaranteed instrument where you're going to get your real purchasing power back, that's impossible, right? The bond market, and the bond market is full of the most sophisticated people, tells you you're going to lose money. Mm-hmm. Now, either the bond market's right or it's wrong. But it's saying that, hey, you know, only losing 3 or 4% in real terms is going to be a good outcome. That's what it's saying. And I think that's actually true generally. Asset prices are sufficiently high around the world that your expectation for returns has to be extremely low or negative. And I, I'm talking to an Australian podcast, so let's talk about Sydney property, which mm -hmm. is one you understand. Yeah. It's exceedingly expensive. There's almost no way that a young person can buy it. It seems utterly irrational, right? But it doesn't mean it can't be more expensive. But at some point or other, you know, my estate has got to sell it, right? And the young people have to buy it. And... It looks like it has to go down. But the problem is it looked like it had to go down two years ago and it's gone up. Right? And it's entirely possible that asset prices that are very high can get higher. You know, there's a Twitter account I follow which is called Buy High, Sell Higher. 
and it's really a comment on you know what the strategy is at the moment mm -hmm. but if you had to ask me on average how are you going to do over the next five years i'm going to look you in the eye and say appallingly and i don't really have a solution right i think we'll make some money on our short book but we're along a short fund and i think our longs will be appalling right and I think there might be some oddball exceptions. I could imagine making a lot of money on the Bank of Ireland position, but only if the world works out the way that I just suggested. And it's far from obvious that that'll happen. And we've got a few stocks in the portfolio that are at seven or eight times earnings, or one at five times earnings, where I think the earnings will be bigger in five years. But I could be spectacularly wrong about that. But as a general rule, asset prices are very, very high. And bonds are telling you that expected real returns are negative. And I hate to say it, the bond market's right more often than it's wrong. And you might think you're selling this asset because it's overpriced, but you've got to put the money somewhere. And if you keep it in cash, it looks like there might be five or 6% inflation for a few years, and there could be 12 or there could be three, I don't know. Right? But either way, that looks like a negative return asset, or you could put it in bonds and they look like a negative return asset. If you're really brave, you can put it in Sydney property, but that looks like a negative return asset. Right? So my short answer is I think you're going to do appallingly. Right? And that appallingly is part of the, the, you know, the end game of the miracle where we've all done so incredibly well for such a long time. The only people that haven't done really well are the people that didn't own assets. <laughs> right? But we're pretty bearish about the world. We think we're as well positioned as possible for it. But I don't want to promise you miracles. If the world does appallingly, you know, we, might, we will do better than that. But we won't do spectacularly better than that. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, if, if the world does appallingly, Bronte clients will be happy with their Bronte position but they won't be elated with their Bronte position. John, I understand. Well, thank you very much for taking us through that. It's been wonderful yet again. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And thanks for joining me at Inside the Rope. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.